Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. He's an extremely busy man, and I'm very lucky and very grateful to have a conversation with him today. He's known as America's Healthy Heart Doc, and he has treated thousands of heart attacks in his over 30-year career as a cardiologist. Dr. Joel Kahn has triple board certification in internal medicine, cardiovascular medicine, and interventional cardiology, and he's also a clinical professor of medicine at Wayne State University School of Medicine. On top of that, he has authored five books, including Your Whole Heart Solution, and The Plant-Based Solution, as well as countless articles on health. He appears regularly on Dr. Phil, The Doctor's Show, Dr. Oz, Larry King Now, and The Joe Rogan Experience. And in a nutshell, all of the above means that Dr. Joel Kahn is an extremely accomplished man and really knows what he's talking about when he says that heart disease is preventable and reversible with a healthy lifestyle, and the foundation of this, according to him, is a plant-based diet. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Thank you for being here with me today, Joel. Gratitude to you and uh, your wonderful audience. Thank you. We actually met a few weeks ago at uh, the very nice gala, 20-year anniversary gala of Mercy for Animals, an animal rights organization. And we were introduced by a dear mutual friend, Dr. Basim Youssef, who also is a vegan. And you yourself have been plant-based now, if I'm correct, about 40 years, Joel. What prompted that decision? Yeah, old Basim Yusuf is a cardiac surgeon. He's now vegan. He's funny. I hope to be funny. I, I actually try and out-humor him at times, and once in a while, uh, I do. And he is Muslim and Arabic, and I am Jewish, and we like that little fact that we share a little common thread there that goes back thousands of years. I had, 42 years ago, I kept dietary laws that are of the Jewish faith called kosher. I walked into University of Michigan. I looked at the dorm cafeteria. I said, there's a salad bar. That's what's going to work for me because I don't do milk and meat and ham and pork. And frankly, it was a very quick transformation of feeling wonderful. I wasn't in ill health, but I did experience a little boost. I started my school performance and everything was great. My gym performance. And Ann Arbor was a very vegetarian, vegan-friendly town. So I never turned back. That was the end. I mean, it's not a very emotional story. It's not a very inspiring story. It was easy. Very shortly after, at age 18, I was immersed in medical school and biochemistry. And I just started studying nutrition. I mean, even though my main path was macho, it was cardiology. We were the masters of the hospital. We could stop heart attacks with balloons and stents, I guess maybe maybe cracking the chest open like Dr. Basim Yusuf is slightly more virile and testosterone-ridden, but uh, cardiologists are pretty testosterone-driven beasts. 
I was like quietly and silently studying nutrition, studying lifestyle, studying wellness, and bringing mm-hmm. my practice really from the year I started a long time ago, 1990. I just started teaching people, look at here's your medications, here's your stents, here's your bypass, but here's salads, and here's yoga, and here's meditation, and here's you know gratitude and appreciation, and it made it more wonderful 30 years of practice, really. You just stuck with something that you felt worked and you were way ahead of the curve back then. You've pretty much seen, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly during your extensive career. You've placed 10,000 plus stents. And in your book, The Whole Heart Solution, you write that people with heart problems should actually bypass, bypass surgery. And you propagate sprouts instead of stents. Uh, that's highly uncommon for cardiologists to recommend that. It's amazing. But why is it not common practice? Yeah, particularly one that sent uh, his kids to college because of, you know, appropriate stent use. So it was, you know, the major source of my income for sure, as it is for most cardiologists that do that kind of work. It is crystal clear that patients should get four options. They should get the option of what medical therapy can do and what the risks and side effects. They should get the option of what a balloon or a stent is, but a very honest discussion of potential risk and long-term benefit, which for very small slices of people is substantial. The majority of stents placed is very difficult to actually prove or justify. Bypass surgery would be the third option, but lifestyle, the science, not the hope, not the expectation, but going back now 50, 60 years that We know that the very factors that bring on heart disease are most commonly lifestyle factors, smoking, fitness, and nutrition, uh, with genetics being a subsegment, but uh, not a very large one. Um, and people should get that option. You know, did you know that today we can start you on blood pressure medicine? Or how about two tablespoons of ground flaxseed and two cups of hibiscus tea every day, which is what I'm drinking right now? Or, you know, possibly infrared sauna or losing weight and exercise and better sleep and you know, a, a thousand other things, a little magnesium mm-hmm. and, a, a, you know, a little um, CBD at night to sleep better, something contemporary. So, I mean, it's that missing link. So I love my colleagues. I was my colleagues. I mean, I was st- standard practice for years, but it's really almost a moral imperative to offer people the full gamut. The problem is majority of cardiologists are not yet schooled in you know, lifestyle or integrated medicine. We can only hope because we're seeing it infiltrate. We can only hope it'll become reimbursable and standard and almost mandatory to offer it first, except for emergency care. Superhumanize. You've mentioned it, I've mentioned it in the introduction. You're a professor and teacher at uh, Wayne State University, which is actually the largest medical school in America. How do colleagues and students react to your teachings? Well, it's a timely question because I actually was at uh, another medical school in the Detroit area today lecturing at lunchtime, and the students love it. I mean, um, some are quite aware, some are well-read, and the rest, you know, it's interesting because some will be CrossFit gym advocates, some will be paleo advocates, but just the idea that lifestyle, nutrition, I'm pretty broad and I'm not very dogmatic, you know, it has to be plant-based. I just want them to appreciate that taking mm-hmm. some lifestyle history from their patients, how rewarding it can be. They're very receptive. Colleagues much more so than in the past. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had uh, lunch and dinner with my colleagues over steaks and burgers and fries, um, unfortunately. But those colleagues are now 50, 55, 60, 65 years old, and they're experiencing the same health problems that the rest of America is. So they're much more receptive than they used to be. But one of the biggest roadblocks still 
is hospital administration. There are just a few amazing examples of hospitals that are willing to, you know, incorporate everywhere, the lobby, patient food, education, um, what guests have to offer and eat that uh, really reflect some middle of the road. It can be the USDA food plate, Mediterranean style eating. You know, find me hospitals that still serve bacon, hot dogs and cheeseburgers every day in the cafeteria or have a franchise like Wendy's, a few McDonald's or right. Chick-fil-A. I, I work at two major hospitals in suburban Detroit. The first one, when you walk in the entrance, you see Wendy's right in front of you and you see Chick-fil-A right there. Before you see registration, you know, mm. fill, fill yourself up. And the other one has a, a Wahlburgers, which is a glorified McDonald's, basically. We have so far to go if that's the possible messaging that you know major medical centers are offering the public. But I'm still hopeful it's moving. And the young people, the young doctors and the young medical students and nurses and residents are much, much more receptive. It is, you touched upon a very important point here. I mean, hospital food, you think they want to kill people, right? Instead of healing them. I also sincerely hope that that's going to undergo a huge paradigm change uh, because it, it is the foundation, as we very well know, of being healthy, especially if you're dealing with some kind of a conditions, health issues, and an impaired immune system. There's quite a bit of, you know, I always go back to science when you can. And if you were to go look up in the National Library of Medicine or Google, one fatty meal and the impact, one mm -hmm. burger and the impact. There's actually science on that. And, you know, and it does bring up the point, if you're in a coronary care unit with a cardiac situation and on your plate is a burger, a white bun, uh, fries, and a glass of whole milk, you could say the science would actually support, you actually are harming that patient for four, five, six hours in terms of artery function, microbiome, leaky gut, endotoxin release. So you can make a very good case that what you said isn't hype. It's science and we just don't think about it. I mean, you know, there's a fair number of people around the world that send me pictures that they're offended by what grandma got and what, you know, they got served, you know, the classic one day after a heart attack, why am I getting meatloaf and macaroni and cheese for dinner? But, you know, you literally could put the science to say that's uh, contributing to a longer recovery. Many hospitals contract with these big companies, and I don't have any ties, Sodexo and Aramark. Um, they actually have amazingly health-promoting programs. It's just a matter of the hospital's willing to incorporate them. Um, you hear about these major providers of food that also provide to campuses and uh, schools. They've actually schooled all their chefs in plant-based cooking and also It's out there. Um, some of the hospitals, you know, run their kitchens totally independent of these large organizations, and it's imperative. But I do think, it'll, you know, it should have happened 20 years ago, 10 years ago. It should have happened by now. I think five years ago, it'll be better. But it can't be better till we get fast food out of these places. I mean, there's just no possible way to justify that. Absolutely. And I'm very curious to see if at some point we might actually see some large class action uh, lawsuits like we saw <laughs> against big yeah. tobacco, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because as you just said, there's a scientific foundation for that. People are getting harmed. You know, cardiovascular disease in particular is actually a topic that hits really close to home for me, as it does for many others. Uh, you know, my husband and I, we personally have family members uh, that have been dealing with health issues in that respect. And 
you know, wonderful, intelligent people. However, often, you know, after the first scare uh, subsides, they revert back to old eating and lifestyle habits. You know how it goes when somebody really close to us tells us what to do or what not to do. We get defensive. We, you know, we don't even listen. What would you as an absolute expert on the topic impart to these loved ones of mine? So I can actually say, hey, this is Dr. Joel Kahn speaking to you and this is his advice. It's true. The hardest people, we all know that, you know, you're never a hero in your own neighborhood or some such thing. You can Mm. be a world expert on psychology and the fitness and food and medicine. And, you know, your family is probably the least likely to uh, to follow suit. I knew you. I knew you when you used to wear shorts and a T-shirt. I mean, who are you to tell me? So you have to be sensitive to that. And, you know, there's this classic paradigm. Uh, I think it's called Prochasco theory of behavior, but there are just some people that aren't ready. I mean, you, you literally, the Pope and the president and uh, the Dalai Lama could all sit down and discuss with a relative the importance of healthy lifestyle and nutrition, and it would, uh, I'm not ready, thank you. And, you know, there's the next trip to the fast food restaurant. You know, you got to be patient. You got to be loving. One of the best tools that's ever been developed is the documentary Forks Over Knives, something I used in my office now since 2011. If I can get a patient to log on to Netflix or take home, as I have many DVD copies here, a copy of Forks Over Knives, and particularly if they're in a relationship, sit down with a spouse or significant other and just take 75 minutes and uh, open their mind that there's a phenomenal uh, amount of science, both for food as medicine, mm-hmm. cancer, food as medicine, heart disease, food as medicine, diabetes type two. Even nowadays, a lot of food as medicine as autoimmune and arthritic conditions. You got to always find psychologically what what's important to the person. You know, is it I don't feel good every day. I don't like taking seven medicines. I'd like to be around for my kids' weddings or grandkids' graduation. And if you can show them that this is a path that improves the odds that all those things might happen, that uh, they hold the power. They aren't hearing it very often in the medical office, but yeah, that's a challenge in patients. And in my own family, I can tell you, we have flat foreheads from going like this with you know, family members on both my wife's side and my side that you know, they, they know my books are out there. They know that we live, we walk the walk and talk the talk and live the life. Um, and they have medical issues that need it. But as loving as we continue to be to them, uh, you know, it's not a rapid path. So I'm as frustrated as you are. Yes. And from the uh, less uh, inspiring side, but probably also necessary side to communicate, what is, uh, everybody is different, of course, but uh, what is usually the prognosis for prognosis for somebody who has undergone a bypass or stents and just continues with life as it was before. This comment was made 60 years ago by a physician. A lot of people forgot about a Dr. Dennis Burkett, MD, who um, studied diet in Africa and identified the extreme importance of fiber. He has this classic comment. You can uh, judge the amount of fiber in the diet by the size of the hospitals, more fiber, smaller hospitals, less fiber, bigger hospitals because it's such an important role. The gut is such an important central point of health. Uh, If you have fiber-rich diets, and of course, I hope your listeners know you only find fiber in plant foods. There is no fiber in chicken or salmon or grass-fed or free-range. It doesn't matter. There's no fiber. It's part of the structure of cell walls of plants. Nonetheless, he made the statement, you know, the current medical system is like a sink overflowing where the doctors respond by mopping the floor but never turn off Mm. the So if you don't take that bypass patient and turn off the sink, 
quit smoking, transition your diet to at least whole foods and better yet, whole foods that are largely or completely plant-based, eliminate excess saturated fat, sugars, and processed foods. If you don't get sleep seven, eight hours a night, if you don't get some fitness by standing, walking, dancing, Pilates, uh, Zumba, whatever you like, uh, if you don't deal with some toxic emotions, and uh, if I didn't mention smoking, get rid of smoking. I mean, you have not turned off the sink, and you'll be like President Bill Clinton, who had bypass surgery, and within a few years was back in the hospital. One of his bypass grafts completely shut off. He needed a urgent stent, and that's when he got the religion and purportedly is eating whole food, plant-based, about 20 meals a week with one piece of salmon a week, which you could debate whether that's good or not, but whatever. It's such a clean diet. That's the thing. I'm I'm a real proponent of clean eating. Not a big fan yes. of paleo, but it's certainly, if practiced right, a whole lot cleaner than what a lot of people yeah. are eating. Mediterranean diet done right is clean eating because it's whole foods. There's no fast food on the plate of the Mediterranean diet. Ketogenic diet, a little different story. It may mm. be clean foods, mm. but jacking up animal foods and saturated fats. And, you know, I've had my strong opinion about it, but uh, just lately, some medical societies, just this week, a major medical society came out. We do not recommend the ketogenic diet for long-term health. We're very concerned the data favors mm. long-term mm. risk, short-term weight gain, long-term risk. It's not a reasonable proposition that medical doctors should recommend it. But God knows many medical doctors are recommending the animal food strong ketogenic diet it's cleaner but it's taken a clean food plate and you know twisted it mm. in a way that's not been consistent with long-term health it's very confusing you know uh, for many people out there i mean uh, me like you i'm i'm vegan plant-based have been so for many many years but i i kind of have empathy for people out there there's so many new yeah. diets you get so much information from so many different sides yeah. and you just mentioned them both uh two of the big names paleo and keto. And I'd like for you to go into a little bit more detail what the problem is with particularly these two very hyped diets. Yeah. And I will directly answer your question, but what I do and what I just lectured to the medical students today, mm -hmm. is there is more unanimity of uh, recommendation than many may think. And what I show these students and I don't have it, but it's easy to see. In 2011, the USDA, our government, not necessarily the ultimate authority in nutrition, but one that makes policy that affects school kids and other funding, Army, nutritional, uh, you know, military force nutrition, is that they came out with a food plate that was 50% of what you eat every meal should be fruits and vegetables, a quarter should be grains, and a quarter should be some kind of protein. And the classic food plate they published had a glass of milk. You should drink a glass of milk a day. Within a couple months, it was a very visually appealing plate. Um, Harvard School of Public Health, this is back 2011, said, hey, we don't have any conflicts with the dairy industry, the meat industry, like the government has in, inherent in the USDA. We want to buff up that plate. Pretty cool. But let's keep it fruits and vegetables, 50% of the plate. Let's change the word to whole grains, 100% whole grains like brown rice, like 100% whole wheat, like quinoa, like buckwheat. And let's turn the word to healthy proteins because bacon, hot dogs, pepperoni will never suffice as healthy protein sources. But they said specifically beans, peas, lentils, natural soy products. They took away the milk. They put a glass of water. And honestly, nothing has changed when the Canadian government published their national recommendations for the diet of the Canadian people. 
in February 2019, eight years after this, it's pretty much identical to the Harvard School of Public Health food plate recommendations when the country of Australia did it a couple months later, 2019, when Italy did it. So if you just stack these all up, they actually look a lot like physician committee responsible medicines food plate of 2009 that really introduced this idea of a food plate that was all whole foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, peas, lentils. They're all very similar in concept. None of them are paleo. None of them are keto. And that's where I suggest people go. And it can be done whole food plant-based. It can be done still in uh, more of a Western style with some other foods, uh, some like Bill Clinton, some fish now and then. But um, then you have this, you know, this proposal. And if people don't know, in 1985, a physician in Atlanta, a radiologist by the name of Dr. Eat, published a major paper a romantic paper. You know, there was a time, it was called Paleolithic Nutrition in the New England Journal of Medicine. There was a time that we did not have chronic diseases and we had a nutrition pattern that was built on eating in the wild and wild game. If we could just get back to that diet, we would restore our health and avoid these chronic diseases, diabetes, dementia, heart disease, and cancer. Interesting hypothesis that kind of, you know, wasn't met by much response. And then a uh, PhD in uh, Colorado by the name of um, Lauren Cordain wrote the first book for the public, The Paleo Diet, in the early 90s. Didn't get much response, but he republished it about eight, nine years later. And maybe the health of America had deteriorated enough. That second edition of The Paleo Diet took off like crazy. And the idea was, let's get rid of grains, even though the food plate that all these major organizations suggest has whole grain. Let's get rid of grains. Let's get rid of dairy, which a lot of us would say could move. The idea that until cows were cultivated in agriculture, uh, most native cultures back in 20, 30, 40,000 years ago weren't drinking goat milk or cow milk. Very often, let's get rid of legumes. Legumes took agriculture to grow. They weren't right. very often a native food. And let's try and find venison and bison and whole fish. Uh, and the idea took off. And, and if you actually read Dr. Lauren Cordain's book, The Paleo Diet, there's a lot you could agree on. He was very concerned about high saturated fat diets, concerned about excess sugar, you know, concerned that cholesterol in the blood mattered. I mean, I read the book and I mean, I was highlighting the things I agreed with. I've written a blog on that topic. Superhumanize. When you really step back and look at it, it's clearly that pattern of eating is much cleaner, as I say, than going to a fast food restaurant or a vending machine. It's been tested at times with small studies of short duration. By being a cleaner diet than a garbage diet, people may lose weight, may reduce their blood pressure, may reduce their blood sugar in the short term. It can be done with relatively modest saturated fat intake. It doesn't have to be extremely high butter uh, and uh, meat diet. There's a version of it that's been tested by a famous MD, uh, Terry Walls, WHLS, for multiple sclerosis. It mm-hmm. helped her tremendously, but she'll tell you, it's not really what I do as paleo. It's got animal products, but it's relatively light on animal products. It's also devoid of added oils, which a lot of us would agree is a, a, not a bad suggestion for a lot of health conditions. But recently, the paleo diet has been examined in terms of risk for cardiovascular disease, and it has in what it's called the randomized study, and it didn't fare well in terms of that because when you're adding in meats, you do raise the potential for inflammation and other markers of developing heart disease. But we really don't know because it's a relatively new diet trend. I think it's fading a bit. I will say proudly, I'm the only plant-based doc to ever lecture at Paleo FX, which is the giant. <laughs> 
International yes. Conference in Austin, Texas. I was nicely greeted by many, many friends of mine that are in the paleo movement, um, sports and nutrition and all. But uh, I, I certainly, I would endorse it over eating donuts, bacon, eggs, and cheese omelets. Sure. But uh, I think it still lacks some. And then, you know, the keto diet, very briefly, uh, was developed as a treatment for epilepsy in children. If you go back to the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, I mean, there's comments by Hippocrates about fasting children with seizures and trying to control their seizures. Um, as pharmacology for seizures came on, as drugs like Dilantin, the nutritional approach to seizures and epilepsy faded, but this literature was there. And the literature says some children with refractory epilepsy will respond with a ultra-low-carb, very high-fat, animal-based diet. But there's a lot of side effects. The literature is full of side effects from nausea to GI upsets to skin conditions, cardiovascular conditions, a rare case of death and all. But somehow, somewhere, whether it was Halle Berry's nice little figure or Hugh Jackman's manly chest, LeBron James lost weight and looked you know, so skinny, something about this idea, because I think it really, people are frustrated. The health in America is not optimal. Weight is up. Uh, they're trying different solutions. And the keto diet caught on this idea that I can lose weight, just like Dr. Atkins taught us. If I just push the bread basket away and eat the burger and the cheese on the mm. burger, I'll lose weight. And you might short term. What is very disconcerting about the low-carb ketogenic diet uh, is it's barely been tested anywhere. There are 10 papers in the medical literature. I found a group that filled out dietary questionnaires. If the diet described was a low-carb, high-fat diet, how did they fare long-term? This is traditional, not perfect nutritional science. All 10 studies say there's a higher risk of death in 10-year, 20-year, 18-year follow-up by finding exactly. a low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic mm -hmm. diet. Now, the response is, well, they weren't really low-carb enough. These people weren't 5% of calories from carbs, and they weren't 80% from fat. But at least the trend is quite concerning, yet you don't see many people, until this medical organization this week uh, published a fairly prominent paper that said just that, you'll lose weight, but you might be mortgaging your future by following this long-term. So there are plant-based versions of the ketogenic diet, mm -hmm a giant plate of arugula with avocados and walnuts and avo oil or MCT oil. It's not widely tested, but it's being followed by a lot of people as maybe a healthier version of more antioxidants and fiber mm -hmm. and such. It's certainly not for all. It's certainly not for heart patients. It's certainly never been tested in heart patients, but it might be a better version. And you're seeing a little transition of some hardcore animal keto people over to a plant-based keto. Yes. And I think uh, I think also what you just said, it's very important. The You might see quick physical results that within our cultural conception are viewed as desirable, uh, but the long-term risk is way too high with keto. And you have a lot of people saying, well, uh, you know, they might be skinny on the outside, but fat on the inside. And it's just right. way too much a risk to take if you want to strive for living very long and very healthily. Yeah, you know, the, the biggest irony is a... A group got together with a lot of funding about eight, nine years ago. It was Peter Atia, MD, a very popular online medical doctor. Gary Taubes, a very popular uh, journalist who writes more about animal-based diets and that sugar and carbohydrates and insulin is the evil, not necessarily saturated fat, and some big funding. And they hired the best researcher at the National Institutes of Health who does nutrition research. His name is Kevin Hall. Please, here's money design a study in your unit at the National Institutes of Health. It's called Metabolic Ward Science, which 
very, very high quality science to prove that a low carb keto diet accelerates fat loss, is the pathway to have long-term health. And although it was a study of, if I remember, maybe eight to 10 weeks duration, it actually Mm -hmm. showed the opposite of what was anticipated, that fat loss slowed over the four weeks on this very well-designed, low-carb, high-fat diet. And you had to eat at the National Institutes of Health. So it wasn't a home study. You stayed, these volunteers stayed uh, in a unit for eight or 10 weeks. It showed the opposite. There was a huge dispute over whether to actually publish the study. But this eminent researcher said, you know, this is science. It got published. And the whole uh, cooperation called NUSI just exploded and dissolved. It doesn't exist anymore. But, you know, when it's really put to the test, there's a theory that the ketogenic diet accelerates uniquely metabolism and helps long term. You deal with weight and all Um you know, usually when you adopt these diets, you just eat less calories. So tell people, you know, go for big bowls of arugula and lentils and beets and peas. Try a whole food plant-based diet without added oil. You'll fill yourself up. You'll get nutrients that you probably never experienced to that degree. You're going to be on a lower calorie diet because of just satiety and it's called calorie density. But, you know, people kind of gravitate to the, I'd rather eat the burger than the bowl of arugula, but uh, one is clearly healthier long-term than the other. Absolutely. And, you know, I've been plant-based for more than 30, 13 years now, and uh, I love to keep track of my stats. And, you know, I'm a, a blood type O negative. All of my biomarkers have never been better. So I yeah. know for me personally yeah. that being plant-based has been one of the best decisions I ever made. And it's just such a ma- major foundation of good health to have a good, clean diet. And uh, I mean, you and I choose the plant-based diet, but in your experience, and I know you do a lot of different things, you are uh, practice meditation, you practice yoga, in, in your experience personally, and also what you've observed with uh, patients over the years, what are the other pillars of good health? Everyone who strives for living long and living well needs to include me, for example, yeah. I want to live at least until I'm 120 years old. Yeah. And, you know, I don't very often talk about my own health because I'd rather talk about the science and all because you'll find somebody following the keto diet that looks good and will talk about their health. It really has to be a little larger global discussion. It also has to be a discussion. What's the impact on the environment? What's the impact on animals? And, uh, you know, I get joked. I get beat up on Twitter all the time. You're talking about Ahimsa. You're talking about karma, that, you know, uh, eating an animal that had pain, suffering, and cruelty during its life might actually, you know, enter your own body and reflect Mm -hmm. your own kindness and uh, aggressiveness. Um, You know, of course, it's a bit of a spiritual uh, belief. I can't measure that with a uh, scale or a stethoscope, but many of us believe that does exist in the world. But uh, to answer, so my health is that I just past age 60 and no medication and energy that, you know, is insanely high uh, in every regard. Um, And I'm very grateful for that. And my biomarkers are excellent too, even though I come from a family with some uh, history of early heart disease, but I've been able to beat that uh, genetic rap. I I try and talk science. So I've said in a couple interviews this year, this is a really bad year to be a butcher. And why is it a really bad year to be a butcher? Because I want to talk, you know, you mentioned before headlines and confusion. A small piece of red meat compared to fried chicken, it's probably a healthier choice. It's not healthier for the cow. It's Mm -hmm. not necessarily healthier for the planet than a black bean burger you make at home. Oh, But what have we learned this year that we didn't know before? Number one, um, there is this entity called red meat allergy. 
very interesting, identified in Virginia, that you can be bit by a tick in Virginia. And the next time you eat red meat, you have a serious allergic reaction, anaphylaxis to red meat. Well, that seemed like a really odd finding. It's actually right? now half of the United States has this tick and cases of red meat allergy. Never saw it before. It doesn't prove red meat is unhealthy. Then there's a, a chemical in red meat, whether you buy grass-fed, whether you buy CAFO, you know, cruelty meat, we should just call it cruelty meat. There's a chemical called NU5GC. And there's some science this year that we don't have NU5GC. We're one of the only species on the planet. We have something called NU5AC. Cows have NU5GC. We actually create antibodies to this chemical in red meat that are now known to attack our arteries. And part of the reason red meat is associated with heart disease is certainly the saturated fat. It's certainly the absence of uh, fiber, but it may actually be an, uh, an immune reaction that our arteries suffer. Didn't know that till some really cool science came out. Um, recently, there's something about the carnitine in meat that uh, causes a chemical in our blood called TMAO, trimethylamine. I don't want to confuse, but the science of why putting a lot of meat in your diet, whether it's white meat, red meat, even unfortunately now, even fish meat because of uh, organic pollutants, they're called persistent organic pollutants like PCBs, DDT, mercury, and such is overwhelmingly in the medical literature and it, it harms our health. So we can just flop back to the science and say, really bad year to be a butcher. Now, the ultimate confusion has been a report this week in the Annals of Internal Medicine that a bunch of 14 scientists analyzed all the data about meat and cancer, meat and heart disease, meat and diabetes. And the headlines everywhere have been, panel announces new guidelines, no need to cut back on red meat from current consumption. So the reality is, because I got involved in this discussion all over the place very early, that it just broke as a story a couple of days ago, was number one, this analysis by these 14 scientists, they just, they formed their own group. They weren't appointed by the World Health Organization. They were self-appointed uh, scientists, uh, not necessarily bad people. Number one, they did actually confirm by analyzing the world data that the less meat you eat, the lower your risk of diabetes, the less meat you eat, the lower your risk of cancer, heart disease, and dying prematurely. They confirmed that. Headlines and their conclusion didn't emphasize it. They couldn't contest that that's the data. They took issue with how strong of a risk it is. It's previously been known that eating processed meat like bacon is about the same risk as secondhand smoke. It's not as strong a signal as firsthand smoke, but it's still a signal. They uh, picked apart the quality of a lot of the data out there, that these were what are called observational studies. 20 years ago, I filled out a couple food questionnaires. 20 years later, who had a stroke, who had a heart attack, who had cancer? Yeah, there might be some problems with people's memory of their diet. There might be other issues, but it's what 80 to 90% of nutrition science in any topic we look at it, that's how the data is generated. They question whether that was accurate and they basically essentially tossed it out and left very few studies they felt were the quality. Well, the story broke today and you know, it made us all, because there was great pushback. Harvard School of Public mm -hmm. Health, Yale and others, uh, World Health Organization all said, you know, we do not agree with their conclusions. They're sort of rogue group. They self-appointed themselves and they're making big splash in the headlines. Turns out there was some funding from the food industry and, uh, you know, the meat industry that was hidden in the background of some of these researchers they didn't disclose. So, uh, they're not looking so credible and so honest right now. And uh, I think very quickly, uh, 
the shift will that this will blow over. But it led to a lot of confusion this week. I don't know how many people went out and had a T-bone or a porterhouse. Probably those who were already eating it just confirmed their bias and ate more. I, don't, I hope we didn't lose too many you know, whole food plant-based eaters that are concerned about the environment because they didn't even discuss that. Absolutely. It's, it is fascinating. And also to tie in just with something you said at, uh, at the beginning, when you uh, delved into the topic, you know, from the ticks to the autoimmune response, it seems like nature is rearing up her head and trying to help us a little bit along the way. And I'm 100% with you concerning that everything is connected. There is a spiritual component to it, uh, but also probably a biochemical component. If you put something into your body that before it died, it underwent enormous stress, all kinds of stress hormones released and other types of chemicals that then go into the muscle muscle, which is the flesh that people who eat meat consume, how can it not on a physical level also affect your body, especially if you expose yourself constantly to it? I have yeah. noticed myself, you know, after I switched to a plant-based diet, a lot of uh, emotional confusion, mood swings, and even aggression just dropped. I feel much more even keeled and centered. And it's been, it's, it's been truly life-changing, not only physically. It's connected to so many different ways of how we relate to ourselves and others. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, reflecting on it, though, it's interesting. This is the first time, maybe the last 10, 15, 20 years, that we have abundant food. In fact, 2011 was the first year there's more disease from overnutrition than undernutrition, malnutrition. We have so many choices. We have so many calories. When you were growing up and I was growing up and my parents were growing up, what did you eat? You ate what your mother or your grandmother put on the table. I mean, right. there were a few things in the icebox or refrigerator. Very few people were eating out at restaurants, or it certainly wasn't the choice that exists. The decision and the pressure and um, the opportunity to have a whole range of food. I mean, you know, literally, we could eat at a different fast food restaurant every meal of the day for week after week after week. Hmm. We've never before had this opportunity. So it is now imperative that people spend a little time to become nutrition experts because they've got to make decisions. And when I was in medical school a long time ago, we had a pathologist in Dallas by the name of William Roberts, MD. He is still alive. He's in his mid to late 80s. He's probably the world's most famous cardiac pathologist. He's handled more hearts at autopsy. He's looked at more arteries under the microscope, and he's written more than a thousand research papers. And he wrote a paper way back then, before there was controversy, before there was paleo wars and keto wars, that our physiology is designed to be predominantly herbivorous, not carnivorous, that the shape of our teeth and the length of our GI tract and the way we breathe and the, the fact that we make enzymes, amylase, that break down carbohydrates, that we're, you know, we're physiologically able to digest whole complex carbohydrates and use them as fuel, that argument after argument, that still is made that, you know, from an uh, anthropologic standpoint, uh, we know that. I mean, I'm 42 years, I've never eaten anything but plants, and I'm not in the protein deficiency ward. Uh, you know, uh, the brain's still working. I just finished my sixth book two weeks ago, a pretty complex book. So uh, we know that the body can accommodate a, a you know, plant-only diet, maybe with a couple supplements that... Uh, fill a few holes that whole food plant-based eaters have like B12, vitamin D, omega-3. They're pervasive amongst the entire public. They're not, I think if anything, you know, good educated plant eaters know that there's a couple supplements, at least B12 they should take. I worry more about the general public not getting that mm. message and mm -hmm. probably be better off just borrowing uh, the one multivitamin a day that I take that covers all the bases. 
that's actually also um, something I wanted to ask you. you know, what are your uh, favorite supplements for heart health? Uh, and also, is there a difference to what you would recommend to omnivores and uh, plant-based eaters? I'm looking around my office. I'm in my medical office. So there are now two or three brands of multivitamins designed specifically for vegans based on mm-hmm. some science that even if you eat a high quality whole food plant-based diet, we're all familiar with the idea that vitamin B12 is actually made by bacteria, not by animals. Fish don't make B12, cows don't make B12, but uh, either they're actually out there in the field eating dirt and get B12 through their ingestion of dirt, uh, being a cow or a, a, a lamb, or very commonly in the factory horror places, they're being injected with vitamin B12 to ensure that the public gets what they want, uh, get your vitamins filtered through cow meat or lamb meat or chicken meat. It's an absolutely insane way of getting it, but it's what the public expects. So we know B12, but if you look at the science, it's possible, even with a very well-constructed whole food plant-based diet, you still could be uh, at risk of vitamin D deficiency, even in Los Angeles, certainly in cloudy Detroit. But I'm telling you, as a medical doctor checking vitamin levels on meat eaters and fish eaters, vitamin D deficiency is widespread. Omega-3, you know, unless people are eating sardine, herring, and salmon three, four, five times a week, my meat eaters, my chicken eaters, my lamb eaters, my fast food eaters, they're unbelievably deficient in omega-3. So there are now a few multivitamins. My favorite is one that actually has six supplements in it. It's called Complement Plus, but it's what I take every day. It has omega-3 from algae. It has vitamin D3, 2,000 international units. It has vitamin B12. Uh, I think it's methylcobalamin, maybe 800 micrograms. I'm not sure. Has a little iodine because we're also salt phobic, which is probably okay. We don't use much Morton's iodized salt anymore. A little bit of iodine, or you know, you use sea kelp or something along that lines. Has a little magnesium. Has a little selenium. Uh, selenium uh, you can get from Brazil nuts, a very wonderful yes. natural source, but. Uh, I'm pretty good with walnuts. I honestly am not very good with getting Brazil nuts in my diet. So anyways, in one fell swoop, pop, you've covered, you know, even the most obscure nutritional stresses on a whole food plant-based diet. I would absolutely recommend to any non-plant-based eaters that that kind of multivitamin is a perfectly logical one for the public. Are there many whole food plant-based eaters that take no supplements? You know, they're getting B12 by eating nori. You can get it from mm-hmm. nori nutritional yeast. Some other foods are fortified with some of these items. If you drink hemp milk, you're going to be getting you know, more omega-3 than the average person as opposed to maybe rice milk or soy milk. So it's possible to do it. I just, most of us feel, why risk it? You know, but I was on um, this uh, a promotional moment when you mentioned it. I was on the Joe Rogan podcast exactly a year ago and they were, they were beating me up. It was a four-hour <laughs> four debate of paleo versus plant-based. And I took out this little spray called Compliment. And I said, that's it. I just, let's stop talking about supplements. That's all I do every day and I'm done. And there's other, you know, uh, ways to approach it. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it's a pretty simple solution to a reasonably important uh, situation. I'm all for a natural diet fulfills all our requirements. The reality is farming practices, uh, pesticides, the glyphosate issue, there's stress on our Health, even with an optimal diet. And I'm a supplement friendly and a supplement trained physician. I've been to university training. Yes. So I do understand how it works. 
Yes, and I'm I'm with you on that. You know, obviously it's it's great if you can get all the nutrients, all the vitals that you need out of a out of your food. However, like you just said, you know, we're dealing with a whole lot of toxins. Even if you buy just organic, soils are depleted. Eating a salad now is very different from eating a salad, let's say, 100 or 150 years ago. And I, for me personally, I think optimal nutrition is yeah. better than natural nutrition. And I also take supplements where needed. Yeah, when you're going to live to 100 plus, uh, most of us that are studying anti-aging as a serious endeavor, not just a woo endeavor, are supplement friendly. Uh, you know, it has yes. to be, I'm again, smacking my forehead. I go to some stem cell meetings, anti-aging meetings, professors, PhDs, uh, biotech kind of investors. And I mean, they're eating garbage, but they're taking 45 supplements a day and getting stem cell injections to not realize that the best anti-aging program is optimal nutrition, fitness, sleep, stress management, not smoking. And we'll have lots of other things to add on, but you know, if you're not taking care of those simple fundamentals now, you know, you're not really in the anti-aging world. No, you're not. And it's actually just like adding a nice, fancy, expensive coat of paint on a rotting structure. <laughs> Take right. care of the fundamentals first sure. and then Take care of all the add-ons. Superhumanize. You already mentioned it before, and I love that you're known for same, saying that veganism is macho. Uh, it's it's mm -hmm. hot to be sexually healthy, uh, which is enhanced by a vegan diet, and it's also very manly to care for animals and care for the planet. You've also yeah. been given the sexiest vegan over 50 uh -huh. award by PETA, <laughs> mm -hmm. and which is wonderful. I also work uh, with that organization since many years. And I, you know, we're talking about heart health, we're talking about general health, and sometimes people are not so quick to latch onto that. But when you talk about sexual health, right. people want to know everything about it, right? So please explain to us how right. sexual health and uh, general health and heart health is related. Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, you know, women gravitate to some of these health issues a little bit more rapidly than men. I give public lectures and it's likely to be 80% women if the topic is nutrition or longevity or health. There is a whole psychology of guys in meat and hunting that goes back generations. But they suffer more uh, in terms of heart disease. We do know that, although at the end of the day, men and women have equal risk of dying of heart disease, but men die at least a generate, uh, at least a decade earlier. Uh, if you know you're reading, I I get Google alerts about heart attacks and celebrities. It's ninety five percent of the time, uh, men. I wish we had not wishing ill will to any woman out there. A few more examples to wake women up to the risk of premature heart disease related to lifestyle choices. But whether it's Bob Harper collapsing of a heart attack or uh, Jim Gandolfini uh, from The Sopranos or uh, Bernie Sanders. I mean, you know, it's just women. Hey, we got Susan Lucci. Thank goodness. A nice example of a Hollywood uh, soap opera star that barely, barely made it to get a stent and recover. But um, when you, you know, so these are important messages. Uh, guys just uh, either aren't hearing it or they're not getting it. Uh, and you're right. The bedroom or maybe uh, the kitchen counter or the backseat of their car or wherever they're having sex, it may get their attention. So really quickly, number one, you know, erectile dysfunction is a huge problem. By 40 years of age, 40% of guys have erectile dysfunction, 50% by 50 years of age, 60% by 60 years, just keep going. So it becomes very common. Why? And then a separate issue is libido. I mean, kind of loss of interest, which uh, is another issue. You know, people that are chronically ill, whether it's blood pressure, whether it's, um, you know, diabetes, arthritis, weight issues, back pain. I mean, that 
impacts libido and sexual performance. You know, a lot of sexual performance, assuming you have a good partner and you have a good libido, is still blood flow. And arteries take a hit from your diet, from your smoking, from your fitness, from your stress. And, you know, we're supposed to have these gorgeous clean arteries everywhere to the uh, female sex organs, to the male sex organs, the heart, the brain. Um, and there is this concept called canary in the coal mine that an early warning, a very important early warning, is a guy starting to suffer partly libido loss, but even more so difficulty obtaining erections, sustaining erections, successful at sex without pills everywhere, without injecting. Uh, you know, the drive to have sex is so great. Guys will jab a needle in their sex organ and, you know, inject all kinds of, you know, prescription drugs from urologists without the thought process. Is that bad blood flow? And if it's bad blood flow there, is it bad blood flow? And I'm at risk of a heart attack. So step number one, if there's erectile dysfunction, check your heart first. I mean, if you want to get a prescription for a blue pill, I just say eat blueberries, forget about the blue pill, but cholesterol, blood pressure, blood sugar. I like a CT scan of the heart called a heart calcium CT scan. It costs about $100 at Cedar sinai or UCLA or any other hospital around. Make sure you're not walking around with a ticking time bomb. And you know what showed up below the waist was a warning before it showed up above the waist. And give yourself some time. Get your heart checked, change your lifestyle if you need medication. Some people actually find out they need a stent or bypass out of the fact that sexual impairment was the first clue. And it's a great motivator. I mean, if you watch Forks Over Knives and you see the wonderful case story, or if you see the new documentary, The Game Changers, and you see the discussion, yes. the impact of food on sexual performance, that gets a lot of guys into the game easier than the risk of stroke, risk of heart attack, risk of dying early. They're frustrated. I mean, they're, they're frustrated. Their relationships are suffering. And it's real. So we know that, you know, um, nitric oxide arteries make a wonderful chemical that leads to blood flow, blood vessels. So eat your beets, promotes nitric oxide, eat green leafies. Again, I love arugula, maybe the best. Eat watermelon, eat pine nuts, eat anything other than creamy milkshakes and bacon and sausagey uh, cheese dishes because they will, uh, a really bad choice before a date to eat foods like that. Really bad choice long term. And you can recover even if you're starting to develop lifestyle related erectile dysfunction. It can recover and you may not need medication and you may prolong and save your life out of that whole process. Some of it's testosterone deficiency. We live in this world of plastics, 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 mm. you know, drinking styrofoam, plastic bottles, wrappers for food at, you know, uh, fast food restaurants, um, even air fresheners. And these endocrine disrupting chemicals can impact our fertility, our libido, and our sexual performance. Now, everything I've said has been about men, because unfortunately, about 90% of the science has been done on men and erectile dysfunction. Female sexual response, God knows nobody really gets it, but some of it is blood flow. Some of it is blood flow and some of it responds. We actually have some data in diabetic women that the same issues of nitric oxide, proper diet and all is been scientifically proven. So, hmm. uh, and, and then it's general health. I mean, women and sex who are heavy back pain and their knees hurt and uh, weight is an issue and they're on medication whether it's be for depression or blood pressure and, you know, kind of dulling their joy de vivre, uh, joy of life and such. I mean, it's going to impact it. So uh, the best care for sex, for heart, for cancer is self-care with a whole food plant-based diet being the centerpiece of that for sure. Mm -hmm. And you said get beyond science. I mean, it is sexy to see people that smell good. Some will say that taste good. Some will say that care, some that are compassionate. I mean, I'm not out there in the dating scene, but 
I think a lot of women would gravitate to a guy that, you know, has an aspect of kindness and concern and environment. Oh, there's lots of bodybuilders that are fueled on plants. Just look up Nime Delgado. Oh, yes. John Venus and, yes. and such. I mean, there's plenty and they, they can hold themselves against anybody else there. So I can't exactly plan to be on the cover of Muscle Fitness Magazine this week, but I mean, I can swing some pretty heavy weights too. And it just mm-hmm. doesn't require beef to do it. We need, to, you know, the paleo movement lost a hero. I went on the Rogan show September 27, 2018. I think three days before a guy named Charles Poliquin dropped dead at 52, 53. He was a bodybuilder. He was a meat eater. He was well-known worldwide. And I mean, to drop dead of heart disease at age 52, it's so tragic. He apparently had a family history of heart disease. But I mean, there's no exclusion to dying of or developing these very serious diseases just because your muscles are big when they're fueled by foods that promote atherosclerosis, cancer, uh, dementia, and all the rest. Yes, sadly so. Very sadly so. Talking about, you know, sexual health and heart disease, there's also other matters of the heart you are very adept at. Uh, you and your wife have been together for many, many decades. So on a different but also related topic to overall health, what is your personal secret for a long and loving relationship? Thank you. I did meet my wife about age 10 and we started dating at age 16, 15. In fact, our first date was Bruce Springsteen concert, 1975, October 4th. So seeing him just turn 70 was, it's always been my favorite uh, place to return to just because that we've been married uh, a little over 38 years, raised three wonderful kids. I mean, is, is there ever tension disagreement? Yeah, of course. But um, I went to a, a lecture, but some people will know the name Swami Parthasani or Swami G. He's a world famous uh, teacher of uh, Indian philosophy called Vedanta. He was in Detroit two nights ago and uh, he gave it a masterful talk, 93 years old. And uh, he made this statement of all his wisdom you know, you're not going to change another person. My habits and my traits are not identical to when I was 16, but there's certainly a lot of similarity in my wife too. I, I have to, he, you know, he said, I honor and love my wife's irritability. That was what Swami <laughs> Parthasani said there. I mean, you're not perfect. They're not perfect. Life's not perfect. If the heart's in the right place and they're showing up for the game and they're caring. So I'm a guy that needs a rope around my neck once in a while, or maybe a, you know, like the old uh, TV show when they pulled somebody off the stage. I need somebody that will bring me back to Bailey. You did really well. Your jokes were a little off color and, uh, you know, and I'm open. Uh, Everybody loves praise and support, but I'm open to getting smacked around a little bit just to finish up. There's a statement in the first chapter or two of the book of Genesis that calls your spouse your Ezer Kenegdo. It's two Hebrew words, but it's actually used in the Christian faith uh, quite commonly. The actual words E-Z-E-R Kenegdo, K-N-E-G-D-O. Ezer means friend and Kenegdo means your opponent. And they're talking about your spouse, that they should be both. They should be your friend, but they should be that person that gives you balance. So uh, there's a lot of ways that my wife and I have different. I'm the social butterfly, and she's keeps the home going and uh, brings, you know, intelligence and organizational skills. I'd be, uh, you know, I'd be, you know, putting confetti in the air all day long and uh, popping open champagne bottles. But it works and it balances. So, you know, appreciate 
the good and the bad and, you know, look for the best in people. If you're looking for perfection, you better get a puppy. <laughs> that's <Yes>. beautiful <laughs> that's all you can do yeah that's a, a beautifully said and a, a really a rescue, a rescue. get a rescue puppy yeah specifically always a rescue superhumanize you know there's a question i like to ask uh, each of the guests that i have the honor of having on this podcast and that is what are the practices that most profoundly have affected you in the course of your lifetime mentally spiritually physically or all of the above that's an interesting question but you know a uh, very quick rundown um and and i have a very active practice and i'm writing and i'm running all over the country so you know it's hard to stay in balance but i i wake up naturally a let let the sunshine or whatever, usually about 6 a.m. I will not touch my phone or anything till I have about two, three minutes in bed of gratitude, just recognizing that not everybody wakes up and everybody wakes up with body parts working and without feeling pain and all. And that's just absolute good practice. I just will not move out of bed before that. It's not really meditative, but it is starting the day in the tone of gratitude. That's certainly one. Number two, uh, habits. There's always fitness in my day. I kind of joke, I do everything high intensity interval. So we're familiar with high intensity interval training. And very often I'll take 15 to 20 minutes and just beat myself up, whether it's with weights or cardio, but I do high intensity interval yoga. I do something called the five Tibetans and you can look that up. uh, A wonderful, very efficient core-based, back-based yoga flow uh, that you can do at home. I, I love an hour long hot yoga with the community, but uh, schedule doesn't always afford that. I have recently added red light therapy, something called photobiomodulation. Mm-hmm. And the advances in technology have allowed you for under $1,000 to buy these large panels of red light, near infrared light. And I spent about 15 minutes a day. There's some vanity aspects because it helps skin age, yeah. collagen wrinkles, cellulite. Uh, but there's also some very fundamental biochemistry about improving the function of your mitochondria, better energy, autoimmune function. This is amazingly science supported. So I do, I actually have some uh, barbells and I spend about 15 minutes in front of a red light panel almost every day. Which device, uh, which red light panel do you use? I love a company called redtherapy.co.co. They're United States, way under a thousand dollars, a full body panel. That used to be a $10,000 device uh, not all that long ago. And I just, it seems very sturdy and very sustainable. And you know, at that price, it's pretty nice. I have an infrared sauna in my house. That is a luxury. That can be four or $5,000, but I use it and it'll last me 20 years. I've had it for about five. Mm. Happens to be what's called a full spectrum. I, I have a sunlight and, uh, sauna, but I mean, both for weight, blood pressure control. There's actually data from Finland that it may promote actual longevity. And these are actually pretty darn good studies. There's data from Japan. They may promote better blood vessel function, sexual function. So it's a luxury. You can, might be able to get it at your wellness center and your health club if you don't have one in your own home. It can be steam because there's now data. Mm-hmm. Finnish steam sauna has uh, quite amazing health attributes that are being identified, but the infrared is just kind of the cat's meow. I love ground flaxseed. I mean, I eat ground flaxseed all day long. I have I have no relationship with this company, but I literally in my medical office, I'm giving out to my patients here, you know, two Great. tablespoons a day, four tablespoons a day. That's what uh, is the name of the company? Um, I don't even know. You know, Carrington Farms. Uh, Carrington no, Farms, excellent. No real financial relationship. But um, flaxseed, you know, there's a statement, make the right thing to do, the easy thing to do. Flaxseed's messy. It gets everywhere. So just the ability to whip and throw it on my salad 
Uh, it seems silly, but it's extra fiber, it's extra magnesium, and it's that omega-3 precursor that so many of us uh, don't have in our diet. A lot of humor, a lot of music. Uh, could be Indian spiritual music. I love Italian rock music. I don't understand it, but it just keeps me fired up. And then uh, sometimes uh, just popular music, Springsteen. A lot of tea. Um, again, slightly um, in my office, everywhere I turn, there's one more product that I've studied, but I love these little peak tea, organic tea mm-hmm. crystals. It's just, I drink five times more tea during the day because I'm not waiting five minutes to steep. I don't have to throw a bag away, just open them up. I love that they're organic. And, you know, I think we all find tea very healing and probiotic, prebiotic. Oh, yes. Yeah, the last thing is I'm a real big fan of blue light blocking glasses the mm-hmm. last hour to a night. I mean, I need my sleep and it doesn't always happen as wonderfully as I'd love. So I have two rituals every night. Here goes another promotional moment. I always do full spectrum CBD before I go to bed. Uh-huh. I, I love this Denver-based company called Functional Remedies, a very high quality. Uh, it, it smells like weed, but it's uh, non-THC CBD. It's so pure. And then I wear my blue light blocking glasses for about an hour or two before bed. I, I really believe this blue light uh, is stimulation of your brain is adverse. And so many of my patients just sleep horribly. So you know, I try and hack it with simple steps. Excellent. Those are all really great tips. And I always love to learn about particular products, particular brands, because I'm going to try them all. Yeah. And uh, for what is next, Joel? I know you have a new book out in a genetic cholesterol known as, I think it's the sticky cholesterol. Wow, you're pretty good. That's absolutely right. Uh, technically called lipoprotein A. Amazingly, there's a blood product called lipoprotein A that affects 1.4 billion people in the world, uh, one in every four person genetically. And it's not on routine blood panels and it can cause your heart valves to scar up and requiring surgery. And it can cause your arteries to clog up requiring sexual impairment and heart impairment, brain impairment. And we're waiting for the super drug. That's why most people haven't heard of it because until there's an expensive drug, you're not going to get physicians trained. The test has been available for decades. It's about $25 blood test. So anyways, I've got a book coming out called The Lipoprotein A Solution, The Sticky Cholesterol, which I'm very excited about. It has a lot of recipes too, because it turns out mm-hmm. whole food, plant-based. What's next? Uh, a lot of LA appearances. Thank you, LA and your hometown. We've got a lot of appearances oh, uh, on the doctor right. show. We've got a lot of stuff lined up with that show, which I just love those guys and gals, Sonia and so Sonia Batya and Dr. Travis Stork. Holistic crew. Does your people know about this vegan cruise every uh, February, March that goes through the Caribbean and a lot of us go and lecture on? It's just kind of a fun thing. No, I need to know about that. What what is it exactly? Again, I'm not financially tied. Holistic holiday at sea, if you look that up. Right. But it's like 2,800 crazy vegans, Dr. Colin (laughs) Campbell, Dr. Esselstyn, Neil Barnard, Chef AJ, uh, Juliana Hever, all kinds of people. You should, you know, I'd be happy to connect you as a uh, speaker presenter. And it's just a great audience for a week. Instead of going to the casino on the boat, they come to lecture halls uh, hungry to learn more about, you know, science and health and longevity. Great, great people. I love it. I definitely like to learn more about that. That's fantastic. And for yeah. people who want to learn more about you, what's the best way to connect with you, Joel? Yeah, the central site is a website, drjoelkahn.com, D-R-J-O-E-L-K-A-H-N.com. But really the most exciting part of that website are the social media links, because I am on Twitter all day. I'm on Instagram you know, several times a day, and I'm on Facebook just enough to say I'm still on Facebook. It's not as dynamic a 
a kind of a medium and YouTube actually. So, um, you know, I really try to jump quickly on news breaks and trends and write quality articles. I, I found that it's just a wonderful you know, way for me to upgrade my skills and my knowledge. So it's rarely that there's a breaking news story that I don't have something out there. Like even today, I think I was, I was actually sent an article by a New York Times reporter before it got released. So I had the opportunity to maybe be the guy that broke the story for the country. That's kind of cool. That doesn't happen though. That's very cool. Yeah, make sure to follow Dr. Joel Kahn. And Joel, it's been really a privilege to speak to you today. Lots of groundbreaking informa information. Thank you. Thank you for so generously sharing your time with us. Well, thank you. We survived about five minutes of a dry throat. I'm in good shape, but uh, <laughs> I had to get my tea going to get us going. But thank you very much. And I look forward to being able to share this with so many people that will learn about all the good things you're doing and will be kinder, gentler, and healthier people because of it. Absolutely. Thank you, Joel. Hope to see you very soon. You will. I'll be in LA very soon. Excellent. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Evolution.